Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. accomplish certain things in life and it shifts our attention from the grandeur of who God is and as we've been trekking through Hosea one of my biggest prayers has been for us to see God as who he is the reality of the greatness of our God and we can see that as we've seen through the first couple of chapters his anger his wrath his judgment but we are also seeing it on behalf of his compassion, mercy, grace, and love, and faithfulness. And it is that God that we, that we can see and experience is, is the one who draws our attention, is the one who uh, deserves our devotion and worship, and it's not the religion, and it's not the, the institution of Christianity, and it's not the faith per se, but it is the God. And so our, our attention and our conviction is to seek God, is to learn from him and, and really love him the way he wants to be loved. So the reason I say that is throughout Hosea, one of the biggest concerns for God is, do my people love me? And, and for, for God, it's, it's a crushing experience to know that his people have loved other gods. That his people have walked away, and worse of all, that his people have forgotten who he is. And I always want you to remember this whole marriage concept because you get to that point where you see Hosea and Gomer. And can you imagine Hosea's feeling when he realizes his wife, Gomer, has completely forgotten about him? She has no concept or no, any notion of who he is because she'd rather be with somebody else. And, and it is this God who is in a sense, fighting and correcting for what? To bring his people back to him. To bring and to win the love of his people back to God. And throughout these verses, I, I pray that you, that you feel that and that you get that because this is God desiring love from his people. Is that, is that like an... An, an odd, odd thing to consider that the God that created us desires us to love him or wills for us to love him, right? That's not a strange concept. When you get married with somebody, you kind of expect that that other person will love you, right? Sometimes they don't act like they do, but you kind of have that expectation of, I'm going to marry you, and one of the basic fundamental elements of our marriage is, I'm going to love you, and you're going to love me. And so here we have this guide, and so I really want you to focus in while we read this, because some of this stuff can get very technical, some of this stuff can get very obscure because of the language that it uses, but I want you to focus on the grandeur of God calling his people back to love him. And this is why we read this in the Old Testament, and we get reminded of this same concept in the New Testament when Jesus himself is asking his disciples 
Who do you say I am? And in that, he's asking, not only do you know who I am, but do you love the person that I am? And Peter answers correctly. So it's this concept of knowing who God is and loving that God. That's why God is bringing restoration in these verses from uh, verses 14 through 23. God is restoring not only the gifts that he's given, not only the blessings that he's giving, but what has he done? He has changed. He is beginning to change the hearts of his people. And he's promising and he's telling them that in the future, in the near future, there will come a time when they will love God completely, wholeheartedly, and give themselves to God without being forced to do so. They will know who God is. That's what we read in verses 14 and 15. What does God say? You're not going to call me Baal anymore. You're going to call me your husband because you're going to know who I am, because you're going to remember everything that I've done for you, because you're going to know the things that I've done for you, and you're going to love me not on that basis alone, but because of who I am. You're going to know me, says God in verses 14 and 15. So these brief verses are bringing us back to this attention of, of who God is. And my prayer is that because we're seeing God trying and restoring the, these elements of love in the people's hearts. We see this. He's restoring the errors of the erring wife. The wife has been in error this entire time. Israel has been doing wrong this entire time. And God is restoring those errors. He's restoring the gifts that he had taken away from his wife. He's restoring her troubled past. He's erasing her past and putting a new name on her past. Her past that we know because we're reading this is a past of scandal, is a past of adultery, is a past that is really not pleasant, and God is deleting that completely. That's what we mentioned last week when we, when we were talking about the Valley of Accord and, and what that meant, and God is deleting the past putting the past aside because the new relationship is coming in. And when there's a new relationship, there isn't a past. God isn't like us. God doesn't remind us of our past. When we enter into a relationship with God, we have a God who is faithful to the present and to the future and who is faithful in not remembering the past. That's what the great King David said in chapter 25 of the psalm, one of my favorite psalms in, in, in the psalms. He says, God, do not remember the sins of my youth. Delete them. Erase them. And so when we enter into a relationship with God, what is God doing? He's restoring the past. The past no longer matters. He's deleting that. He's restoring false worship, as we read in 14, 15, and 16. And he's restoring the most important element of his wife, her heart. That's what God is really seeking after, the heart. Changing the heart. And in all of this, what God is showing about himself is he is demonstrating mercy. Now, as we have read about Gomer, and as we have read about Israel, do we... We, we can see it at the, at the most basic level that Israel does not deserve this mercy, correct? I mean, if you, at the most natural uh, state, you would know and you would consider an adultering wife, a person who is married to a wife who is consistently in adultery, we would say she does not deserve mercy. However, 
God is demonstrating this great compassion and tenderness. We get this idea of God, and towards the end of this talk, uh, this sermon, we're going to explore some of the attributes of God, which I think are very important for us to understand. But we get to see his tenderness, a God that feels, a God that knows and understands, and a God who is willing to bow to listen to the cries of his people. He is merciful, and God is bringing his people to get to know that mercy. So I want to I set that up because, especially today, the technicalities of, of today's part are, are a little bit uh, daunting if we, if we just attack it from a broad perspective or from a general perspective. So I want to really get your attention on understanding the mercies of God and what he's doing and why he's doing what he's doing. And, and we're going to get to see that. And then the greatest part of God's mercy in all of this is understanding the context of what's going on. We're going to get to the passage in a bit, but I want, to, I want you to remember when we started in chapter 1, I, I set out the foundation of, of why Israel was rebellious and why Israel was chasing after many gods. God had provided, God had given, God had blessed, God had given prosperity. And what did Israel do in, in, instead of worshiping and honoring God for that prosperity, what did Israel do? She whored after other gods, in the language of Hosea again. She went after other gods and, and confused the gifts from Yahweh, from God, and attributed them to the gifts of Baal. And so in this blessing period, when Israel is rich and prosperous and she's doing well, she is honoring other gods and saying, thank you, Baal, for giving me this prosperity. And we, we, we've already read that. We've already understood that. But I want you to remember the prosperity element. But then Hosea comes in and says, God is going to temporarily judge you. God is going to take away these gifts. God is going to make you a, a wilderness. God is going to make you a desert. And bam, 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 bam. And then we get this picture of, of a deserted, abandoned Israel. A poor, left out on the street wife. And so if you have this mentality, we have an experience of roughly 40 years of prosperity throughout the kings, especially King Jeroboam, as mentioned in the beginning. But then we get the destruction. And the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III reigns between 743 and 732 B.C. And what's happening? 10 years, 11 years of constant destruction over Israel. So here we have one of the most brutal kings in Assyria coming down over Israel, and for the past 10 years, while, while in this context of this writing, while Hosea's writing this, the only thing Israel has experienced is pain, destruction, abomination. They have uh, experienced uh, their, their towns being completely deserted. Their cities have been broken. Their buildings are destroyed. And in a couple more years, their capital is going to be destroyed. But all of their experience at this very state in the chapter is destruction. And that's why I want you to understand, because in the middle of destruction, we're going to read in the, at the beginning of verse 18, we get this concept of animals, and, and then we could ask ourselves, well, what is 
What do animals have to do with anything? But in, back in the day when, when the cities were desolate and when the cities were destroyed, the, and there was no fortifications. There was no boundaries. So the animals would come in and completely destroy everything, every part of the city. So you would have an ugly, destroyed city. No life whatsoever, especially after the animals came in. You can picture all this. Animals just destroying dogs, flooding the streets. Uh, the vultures and all these ugly birds and everything just coming in and destroying the city. So the, the context of this time period is destruction, is annihilation. And then we get these words. So now trek with me as we read the second part of this portion. Chapter 2, verse 18 and on. And it says... In verse 18, and I will make a covenant for them, a covenant on that day with the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now I'm going to stop right there. Once again, as I mentioned in the beginning, God's job and God's role in this is, be, is restoring the knowledge of himself amongst his people. God is not just concerned with giving his people good things. God is concerned with getting his people to know who he is. This is a hard fact even in our 21st century. And you and I are very much aware of this hard fact because we are people, and in our sinful nature, all we desire at times are the good things. God, give me. God, show me mercy. God, show me all these good things. God, give me this job. God, if you only do this for me, I will be eternally grateful. God, if you allow me to get that car... I will be eternally grateful. God, if you're able to change that girl's heart towards me and get her to love me, I will be eternally grateful. I'll come to church every Sunday and, and lead worship and do all this good stuff. God, if you just give me, I will worship. So God, in this, if, if, if we were to see God just restore the gifts, then we could kind of come to that conclusion and say, yeah, you know what? Uh, as long as we're faithful to the commands, God will restore his gifts to us, and we're just going to be people that live off the gifts God gives us. But that's not all God's worried about. God doesn't want to just give his people good things, which is the misconception of a lot of modern-day preachers. It's, it's just good stuff. Here, here's all the good things about it. God doesn't just want us to focus on that. God wants to get his people to know him. Know him in the good times and know him in the bad times. Know him when he gives gifts and know him when he takes them away. We're going to get to this concept in a little bit, but that's what God is doing in this moment. He wants his people to know the Lord. 
And it's interesting because we have this metaphor of marriage this entire time. It's, it's very difficult to, to get away from this metaphor because it's the start. It's the beginning of chapter 1. It's the beginning of chapter 2. So we have this marriage concept. And this Hebrew word of knowing, yada, in the marriage world and the way it was used in technical terms for marriage was not just, I'm going to get to know you, but it's, I'm going to get to be intimate with you. It talks about intimacy between a husband and a wife. And that's why this language is so uh, uh, familiar to us in, in the marriage concept, because we get to verse 19, and we see this word betrothal, uh, the, the, this, this word that means an engagement, kind of an engagement, but more than an engagement, because women who were betrothed were, were considered already married, but, they were, but the marriage wasn't considered a complete marriage until they knew each other. And that means that they were intimate with each other. So, so if you get this from Hosea's perspective, this is a, a time that Hosea and his wife have been so separate from each other, have been so, uh, there, there's been such a big barrier between them. There has been no love on her part towards him. And finally, when Hosea wins her back and, and is fighting for his wife and is fighting for his marriage and trying to get her to love him back again, what's happening here is it's reminding us as readers that there's been so much distance time in this that they have not been intimate with each other at all. And if you put this in years concept, remember their last, their last baby, the third baby that they had together is probably around 13 or 14 years old by this time. So since then, there has been a separation between husband and wife. 13 to 14 years where there has been no intimacy between the marriage. Now if you're married, you, you understand the gravity of that situation. If you're married, you understand that's not where you want to be. You know, you have a wife and you're not, and, and you're, you guys aren't together. That, that's not where you, you're constantly sleeping on the couch. You're constantly sleeping at your friend's house because your wife doesn't let you in the house. That's not where you want to be for 14 years. And then what God is doing, and in the language of Hosea and Gomer, he's bringing them back and they're going to know each other again. It talks about intimacy. Now, on our aspect with God, it's not that type of connection, but there is this marriage metaphor that we have to really understand. And that's what that word yada means, to know. So what God is talking about here with his people is that he wants to come and show mercy and give gifts and do lavish things with his people so his people come into an intimate knowledge of who God is. It isn't just knowing God, it is loving God. It talks about heartfelt love. There's a lot of people in this world that know who God is, and they don't love him. What God is doing is bringing his people into this relationship of adoration and of true love, and that's where true worship will come from. So that's what he's doing. And so when he talks about this covenant at the beginning of verse 18, Israel's memory of the uh, prosperity and the times of greatness is in a distant past. They've forgotten about it completely because the only thing they've been experiencing for 10, 11 years is this distance from her husband 
because there's no safety, there's no security anymore because God has removed that. And so they're in, in poverty and they're under war and they've been stricken down by the Assyrian arrows, arrows. And the only thing they can remember about their past was that one day, long time ago, they were very rich, but now they're suffering. But God brings this concept back. In his restoration, God is saying in verse 18, I will make for them a covenant. I will cut a covenant for them on that day. Now remember, every time you see that phrase, on that day, from now on in Hosea, unless I let you guys know otherwise, but from now on, it's talking about that future day of salvation. It's really pointing to a time that we're in right now. And when the, when the day the Lord returns. It's a day of promise and of future and it's a day of salvation. He says, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. Now, once again, what does that mean? What, is, what do these animals have to do with what we've been reading and knowing about God? Well, if, if, you, if you consider this and if you understand this, you remember that in, in verse 12, the animals were going to be used for judgment upon the people. So now God reverses that judgment and God makes a, a covenant and a promise between the animals and the people and it says you guys are going to live in safety with each other and you guys are going to be cool with each other. And at a grander scale, God is reminding his people of his original plan. If you guys remember Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, there, there was this relationship, relationship between animals and humans and they were cool with one another. They could walk around and, and pet the lions and pet the cheetahs and not be scared to death. And, and this concept to us is like kind of goofy and kind of funny, like, oh, really, like in the cartoons and stuff like that. It, it's kind of distant to us because we, none of us would be caught dead inside of a lion's cage, right? We would be caught dead in a lion's cage because we'd be dead if we were in there. But, but none of us would voluntarily fall into a gorilla cage, right, because they'll destroy us. Uh, so this concept of animosity between the two different kingdoms is going to be at peace. So to us, this is a distant concept because we're not agricultural. We're, we don't live in an animal-run location. But you talk to people in Mexico, you talk to people in, in other parts of, of the farm world, in, in, in Central and in the Midwest uh, here in the United States, they kind of understand this a little bit better. There is peace between the animal world, but what God is really driving at is he's going to bring a restoration of how things were. Now, you remember last week we talked about how God, or two weeks ago we talked about how God's going to take her into the wilderness because it's going to remind her of, who, of her knowledge of him when she barely met God. When Israel barely met God, she saw the greatness and the miracles, and so God was trying to remind her and by taking her into the wilderness, what that meant. What God is saying here is, this is how things were. This is how I planned things. This is the, the design that I had for my people to live at peace with the animals. And not only that, that, re, that reminder is also that they were going to govern the people. Remember what uh, Genesis chapter 1 says, that the, that the man and the woman were going to have authority over the animals. And so, although it's a distant concept to us, it's God restoring his original plan. And if you read Revelations, this language is found in Revelation. You'll see this, the, the, the kingdom of God and this peace between animals. And, and you may not understand it now, but it's just talking about peace. What God is doing to his people is bringing them to this level of peace. 
And we get this even more because you're, you're not only going to have peace with the animals. What does it say at the rest of the, uh, at the other half of the verse? And, I, and it says, and I will abolish, in verse 18, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. So not only is God's people, are God's people going to have this concept of peace between animal kingdom and, 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 and our humanity, but we're also going to have peace amongst each other. Now in the context that they're in, that's huge. Assyrian arrows have been flying towards their camp constantly for 10 years and been stinging them and killing them, completely annihilating these people. And God is talking about a future time of peace? To them, to them, to them hearing these words from the prophet Hosea is, is uh, like, wow, great hope, great aspiration. There will be peace. It's not always going to be like this. And Hosea, not knowing, is pointing us even further down on that day to a time like us. But if we look at it, we're like, well, we don't live in a peaceful time. I mean, there's walls about to be built. There's wars on the other side of the, of the continent. There's on the other side of the planet. There's constant, uh, all of this stuff is going, all of this chaos is going on. So there ain't no peace in this world at this very moment. Everyone wants peace, but, but even the United States amongst each other doesn't have peace. There is uh, a lot of movements happening within our, our own country that have been dividing our country have been dividing us with our, our, our southern neighbors in Mexico, have been dividing us with, with people like Russia, have been, or, or maybe uniting us with the enemy. Stuff is going on in the world that is messed up. There is no peace, and we can look at this and we can say, God, well, uh, that day has yet to come. And, and, and God would say, that's right, because it's coming. Because it isn't until the peace of uh, uh, the king of peace reigns is when we will have con continual peace peace but the thing is it's coming and that's what God is getting his people to know though you live in in a in a moment of complete judgment and though you're living in the over in the hands of the Assyrians and then you're going to live in the hands of the Babylons and then you're going to live under the hands and the rule of the Persians although you're going to live in these tumultuous times there will be a time of peace pointing to the future and for us here in, in Cicero Illinois in Vida Abundante English, I want to make sure that you guys understand that. There will be a time of peace. There will be a time of peace. There will be a time where people, for instance, in, in, our, in our context, won't be driven out of their countries and have to trek thousands of miles up another country in order to get to our country to feel peace or to feel security. That won't have to happen. There won't be a separ separation, a segregation amongst races. There won't be a separation amongst you're black, I'm white, you're brown, I'm, I'm black. And none of that will exist because the Prince of Peace will reign forever and ever. And we will find that in Jesus Christ. But the time, my friends, is coming. Do I know when that time is? No. If I did know, I'd be a heretic. I would be like, yeah, it's January 20, 2023, and uh, this is when it's going to happen. I don't know that. But what I do know is that I can be confident in his word that that time is going to come. 
And so what God is doing in these verses, although they may feel a little awkward, what God is doing is instilling, inputting, impregnating in his people a time of peace. When all they've experienced is war, there will be a time of peace. It's a time of restoration between Israel and the nations, between Israel and, and God. I love what it says in, in, in verse 18 in the middle. He says at the beginning of that phrase, and I will abolish. That's the translation that ESV uses. And it says, I will abolish the bow and the sword. But in the Hebrew, that word abolish means destroy. So I love the way the Hebrew puts it, God destroying the weapons of war. So it isn't that God is just putting them aside. It's God is destroying the weapons of war so that they will never, ever be used again. And he will bring peace in the land, and they will lay down in safety. That's what it means. When you're able to sleep and relax and you're at peace, that's what God is going to do. Now, you could, you could think about that a little bit in our context. Usually, in the United States of America, a lot of people here need sleeping pills because they can't sleep, because their mind is constantly worrying about tomorrow, is constantly worrying about yesterday, it's constantly worried about what's going to happen to them, where they're going to work, where, and all of that is, is, is driving them nuts, and so we need help to sleep. And God says they're going to lay down in, in safety and security and in peace. Because they are with God. And friends, that moment will come for us. And that moment is, is a partial reality, even now. Although it's not a complete reality because worry does creep in. But we, as sons and daughters of God, who have been saved by Jesus Christ, we have peace. More than, most importantly, we have peace with God. That's what God is saying here. You're going you're gonna to lay down in peace. You're not only having peace in, with, with each other and the animals and the nations, but now you're going to have peace with me. You were my enemy, per se, Israel, because you were worshiping other gods, but now you're going to be at peace with me. You're going to be able to sleep finally. How many of us love to sleep? I did not want to get up this morning. Sleep, sleep, sleep. It's beautiful. It's precious. But it's more precious when you're at peace. And God says, I will bring that to you. So all of this concept is a reversal, and it's going back to original design. The way things are now, we're not part of the original design. The way things are set up, the mistakes, the horrendous actions that are occurring now, we're never part of the design. Do you? Think about it. In Leviticus chapter 26, it says, your threshing, your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land in security. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. That is Leviticus 26, 5 through 6. That is pre, that is predating everything Hosea's in. It's a moment of God's people with God, God giving the law to his people, and God saying this is how it's going to be. 
It's part of the original plan to live securely and in peace and in safety. The way things are are messed up, not because of God, but because of us. That's what we really have to understand. So therefore, God is bringing this new covenant to be. He's bringing in reconciliation. He's bringing in freedom. He's bringing in peace, security. And the threats that we read at the beginning in chapter 2, all those judgment things that are going to be occurring, will no longer be a part of God's people. That's what God is trying to get his people to see and feel. So this restoration will bring about good worship that will restore the land. But then it goes a little bit further. This restoration is not just on the peace level and on the security level. It's not just about the animals and Israel or the nations. But now God is going to restore completely the relationship. So read with me verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I'll say that with me. Forever. I want you to say it a little bit louder. Forever. I want you to get that. God will betroth. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I love how it sounds more in Spanish, more like impactful. Para siempre. It's like, boom, you know, Spanish. I think Spanish is the heavenly language, y'all, but um, I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. But, but anyways, it's a forever concept. It is a marriage. It is a relationship that is speaking about a, a constant, nonstop demonstration of irrevocable grace, love, and mercy. Nothing will ever destroy the marriage again. I will betroth you. I will, in a sense, remarry you. Can you, can you get that? Can you get Hosea telling Gomer that? Gomer has been constantly in, unfaithful and doing her nasty uh, prostitution and whoredom with other people. And can you picture Hosea de deleting all her past and grabbing her by the face and by the hands and saying, I will remarry you again, and this time it's going to be forever. Can you imagine the man and the woman, and, and, and in this concept, God and his people, God and us. I will marry you forever. It's not 20, 20th century, 21st century marriage where it's like, I'll give it a shot. We get five years period of annulment, and in five years this doesn't work out, peace, I'll grab my toothbrush, and I'm out. I go hang with my boys. I get to play PlayStation all day now. It's not that type of marriage. It's not that like, let's, let's test the fields. Let's see if this works. And if this doesn't work, well, you go your way. I'll go my way. And I'm still young. I still look good. I'll go to the gym and I'll still work out and I'll get, I'll get mine. You don't have to worry about me. That's not it. God is completely devoted to his people. And that's why he says forever. And when God says forever, it is forever. It isn't like God is going to have a change of mind. It isn't like God is just saying that to be nice. It's because God is saying that, that we understand that this is 
forever. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me. I want you to read this. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. You see, those five nouns that we just read, that's who God is. And that's what I wanted to get to today, to talk about the nature of God. In a sense, this is a mini discussion on the attributes of God. What does righteousness mean? What does justice mean? What does steadfast love and mercy mean? What does faithfulness mean? These are what God, are, these are the objects that God is going to use to buy back his wife. And in chapter 3, we're going to read later on how, how Hosea has to buy his wife back. So right here we read this concept of God remarrying his wife and telling her, I'm going to remarry you forever. And in chapter 3, we're going to get the literal way it looks of that Hosea himself has to go take out his debit card and pay for his wife. She was mine, she was my wife, and now I have to pay her back. I mean, pay for her in order to get her back. So it's God doing even the last part that pertains really to us. But God is doing it for himself and for us. Can you, can you picture that? Can you see that? We're the ones that are supposed to be asking for forgiveness. We're the ones that are supposed to be asking God to, uh, to, to bring us back, to forgive us. And no, God is the one that comes after us and buys us back. God is the one that chases us because we're his. See, if we were not his, if we weren't his original wife, if we were not his, he would, he would leave us alone and be like, well, do your thing. But because we were his, and even though we went astray, he went after us. Got chased after his people. You get the same concept in, in, in Luke in all the parables of the, of the three lost things, the, the lost coin, and, and then especially the prodigal son. God goes after. God awaits the return. God is seeking restoration with his people. And he's going to do so by giving the most lavish gifts there is. He's going to do so by demonstrating that no one else can give righteousness. You think that anyone in this world is righteous? Do you think our government is righteous? Do you think our government is just? Do you think other countries' governments are just? And not only just, not, I'm not just bashing the United States and just saying, oh, everything's wrong. But can you understand the concept of politics? And can you honestly say politicians are honest? As a matter of fact, a lot of pastors aren't honest. Well, you know, at the grander scale, not, not to point at me, now let's point at the politicians. Political world, government. A lot of us don't have faith in them. So who else can buy back the wife? God is saying, in righteousness, I will pay for you. But here's, here's the beauty of it. And I, I don't have time now to get into the attributes, what I really want, the meat of this message today. But here it is. Here's the, 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 the summary of what we're going to be talking about next week. 
Righteousness is one of God's attributes. Attributes are those qualities and characteristics of God. And there are some characteristics and attributes of God that are incommunicable. Now, that's a theological term to say that only God has. For instance, the Bible speaks on God's omnipresence. What does that mean? That God is everywhere. Can humans be everywhere? No, we're human. So that's an uncommunicable attribute of God. But there are others that are called communicable attributes, which are uh, attributes that God has that we can have. One of those communicable attributes from God is righteousness. And next week, when we dive deep down into what righteousness means, you'll understand why God buys his wife back with righteousness and then how that implies that she will now act towards him and towards others. So when God gifts these gifts, when God sets up this payment, it isn't just God bringing this to the marriage, but now what, this, what these gifts are going to do in the marriage and how they're going to be translated to others. So now the wife, in this sense, will be able to act in righteousness towards God herself and act towards in righteousness towards others. That's a very interesting concept, and I don't want to get too into it because then I'm going to stay here another hour, but, but I want you guys to read that. Just read that again. Read verse 19 when you get home. Make that part of your daily reading. If, if you haven't even gotten into a daily reading plan or you don't know what that is, talk to me. I can help you find a daily reading plan. There's a lot of stuff out there, but if, if you kind of just are looking through Hosea, read that every day. Let's read that one more time before we leave. Verse 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. I want you to memorize those verses. I want you to feel those verses in your spirit, in your soul. That God loves and God restores and God brings about a new relationship with himself. When we couldn't do it, God did it. So I want you to count how many times God says, I will. That's three. Never here do we say, they will come. I will be true to me. When we can't do the job, God jumps in and does it for us. So let's stand up. Let's pray before we dismiss. And after we, uh, we pray uh, with these two minutes that we have of extra time, that, that never happens. That's, that's impressive. I, I, I just impressed myself today. <laughs> I finished two minutes early. With these last two minutes uh, after the prayer, just say hi to one another. I would really love for you guys to connect and, and meet and know one another. We've been growing and, and we've been filling out the seats. How many of you guys can say amen? The seats, I think there's 70 seats here, so let's keep pushing forward so that we can keep filling these seats up. But let's pray. Father, we, we thank you because of what you've done. That's it. You've done. You've worked. 
We sang earlier, I've worked my fingers down to the bone and nothing I could do could ever atone because that was not our job. It has been you from the beginning. You are the one that has worked to bring his people into a right relationship. And Father, there's nothing else we can say or do other than thank you. Thank you for betrothing us again. Thank you for loving us when we were so unlovable. When we did everything contrary to your word. When we are the ones that broke our original covenant with you. Yet you still loved and you still gave. There's nothing else that we can say other than we are humbly before you, accepting your grace, and in return, loving you with a full heart of devotion. So today, and tomorrow, and next week, and the month to come, in the year 2019, we are wholeheartedly committed to your worship and to your love. Guide us and help us because we are prone to wander, but you bring us back in your name. And we all say, amen and amen. God bless everyone.